Hi, this is Lex, and welcome to the Fintech Blueprint. It's your podcast about fintech, decentralized finance, digital banking, investing, robo-advice, artificial intelligence, and all the other frontier technology that is transforming financial services. To get more content, like an illustrated transcript of this conversation in your inbox, subscribe at fintechblueprint.com. So without further delay, let's jump into today's episode. Hi, everybody, and welcome to today's conversation. I'm really excited for today's episode. We have with us today Chandani Jain, who is the founder and CEO of a really interesting artificial intelligence company called Aquan, and we'll open up what it does as well as talk more generally about AI, deep learning, and other approaches to intelligence in financial services. So with that, Chandani, welcome to the conversation. Thank you, and thank you for having me. My pleasure. Let's start with some of the early threads of your career. What kinds of things did you do in your education, and what did that translate into in the early experiences that you had? I studied engineering in my undergrad. It's a very classic Indian thing to, you know, start with engineering, but because engineering is so broad and branch out, branch out into like one of many things that you can do, consulting or finance or just something else. So even though I studied engineering, my first job out of university was at Deutsche Bank. And then I actually did not enjoy that at all. So I decided that's it. I'm done with finance, ironically. And uh, I am going to go to grad school. So I came to the U.S., and I went to UFI at Urbana-Champaign, also did my graduate degree in mechanical engineering. At that time, I found a company called Optiver, which is, I didn't know at the time about this area at all, but it's, it's basically a prop trading company, one of the largest in the world. And they were recruiting on campus and they had this very interesting math test. It's eight minutes, 80 questions, and the cutoff is 70 plus. So I just took the test for like an ego boost, you know, I'm good at math. Let me see how I do on this test. I qualified that test. So they told me that if I interviewed with them, they would pay for my trip to Chicago. I was a poor grad student with no money. So like, yeah, free trip to Chicago sounds great. So I <laughs> went to interview with them. But then when I met the people there, they were really interesting. They had a very different approach to finance and what I had seen at Deutsche Bank. It was just very, very smart people solving some really, really interesting problems, using math to solve those problems. So I decided to go work for them. That's where I spent the majority of my non one career. So worked for them in Chicago as a trader, then moved with the company to Amsterdam. Sorry to interrupt, but it was an eight-minute test with 80 questions and a 70% pass rate? 70 questions plus. You had to get 80 questions, 80 math questions. You had to get 70 or more correct. Oh, wow. Okay. What were the questions like? It's, it, a lot of it was just mental math, you know, like 0 0.005 multiplied by 0 0.087 and then, yeah, addition, subtraction, multiplication, division, logic. It, it, it was basically testing you for quick thinking because that's what you have to do as a trader. How did you find out about this test? Was it like advertised in the recruiting on campus or was this like, was there some sort of most difficult, sadistic <laughs> test website that it was ranked highly on. It was at the career fair. You know, when what you're like when you're a student, you go to a career fair because you get lots of free stuff. Every Everybody's booth has like free pens and free water bottles and all of that. So that's why I went to the career fair. I'm not proud to admit it. But these guys at the October booth were handing out like a math test. So I figured I'd take it. Why not? Amazing. Really good 
advice for for companies to attract smart people is to give them impossible things to solve. Okay, so you're flying out there, you've met them, and they're doing really interesting stuff. What is the kind of problem that they're solving? Still problems related to finance, how to make better investment decisions, how to execute, how to time your trades better, how to make sure, for example, even if you think it is a good position to take as a trade, that you exit it at the right time. You know, as humans, we have the tendency to hold on to our profits for too long and get scared of our losses too quickly. So it was things like that, but like philosophical things, logical things, but all being solved through math. For example, we had this thing of people overestimate what they know and underestimate what they don't know. Like what we know is so little and what we don't know is so large, just as, you know, in in general for humans, but we tend to overestimate how much we know. And to prove that, me and somebody else on my team, we devised this one game that we would play with other people on the floor. And we would ask them 10 questions and we would say, what is your 90% confidence interval of the answer to this question. And the questions were random, like, what is the weight of an elephant? How many windows do you think the building across the road has? And you had to give a 90% confidence interval, which means you think there's a 90% chance that the answer is within the bounds that you've given. So you And you could say whatever you wanted. So you could say the weight of the elephant is between 10 kilograms to 10 million kilograms if you wanted. It didn't matter. You just had to give a 90% confidence, confidence interval. And if your confidence intervals were correct, then when if he asked you 10 questions, your the actual answer, nine out of 10 times, should be between the, the bounds, right? And it was just surprising. And you could give any interval that you wanted, but most people, just as a point to prove how overconfident we are, most people would give very tight bounds. And then when we finally saw the answer, the answer, like nobody, I think the best was six of the answers were within their bounds. Nobody got to nine. Most people would have like two or three or four. So it, it was things like that that, 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 that I found interesting. It was trying to solve how to be a better trader, how to make better investment decisions, but everything was done through the angle of math and logic. Makes sense. And this is the firm that you joined? Yes. Got it. What were some of your observations around you know, participating in capital markets? You know, and I say this from the perspective of the markets are such a complex system that modeling them all is impossible. You know, you can't predict all of the emergent behavior. What are the things that that were sort of sufficiently circumscribed that were places where you found alpha or places that you found worthy of trying to create a solution mathematically? I can talk for so long about that. It, it's fascinating. It's it's just like being on a trading floor and daily making decisions about what you think is a good trade and a bad trade. It's 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 fascinating. And the I mean the the main takeaway that I would have that I after all of that was ninety nine percent of the times markets are just random. You actually cannot predict what would happen. Markets are random. Markets are irrational. It's what you're really looking for is that one percent of the time that you can actually spot a trend and make a prediction about what, what would happen next. If you recognize that, then you just have a much better time as a, as a trader than instead of trying to say, I can predict every move to market. There's a rationale behind what's happening. Most of the time, there's actually no rationale. It's it's just sometimes it's completely emotion-driven. Sometimes, sometimes it could be news flow-driven, but you might not know that it is news flow-driven. So we had, like, there's one thing that we had on the team that we said, and we say this in human life as well, right? Hindsight is twenty twenty, But there's no point, let me think about a bad trade, if the information that made it a bad trade was not available to you at the time you made the trade. But at the same time, it's good to recognize when you got lucky, if the thing that made something a good trade was not information available to you at the time you made the trade. So then every time you would make a trade, 
we would put our, our likelihood to say, I'm 70% confident that this trade will work out. I'm 50% confident, well, 50% you should never put a trade on. I'm 90% confident that this trade would work out. I think that the market will you know, move. Let's say I've bought, I've bought a stock. I think the market will move up to a certain and we bought a stock at 100, the market will move to 120 before before it comes back down. And I think that there's 80% chance that would happen. Then we would look back at the end of the month and see when we said 80% times it would happen, did it actually happen 80% of the time? Did it actually happen 70% of the times? If things didn't happen, things that we predicted would happen did not happen. Did we have the information at the time to say that the market would move in a diff- different direction compared to how we thought it would? And if we didn't have that information, it's random. Just accept it. It's random. There's nothing you could have done. If we did have the information, then we can go and improve our trading system to say, why didn't we use that information? Did we come to the wrong conclusion using the same information? I think the the, the main realization, like it, it's a humbling realization to say most of it is actually just random. Just try and find those times when it is not random. The best you can do as a trader is try and identify those times when it's not random and make a decision. Got it. That sounds like a very Bayesian approach to the world, right? Where you're trying to map out the various probabilities of what's possible. And then to do that in a way that is least subject to human behavioral fault. And then once you're in a particular state, you try to learn how good your map was for predicting things. It's a life approach as well, right? Uh, There are things things outside of your control and there's nothing you can do about it, but of the things that are in your control and you have the information on, are you making the best decision based off of that? And if you're not, let's make sure we make the the best decision next time. How did you move from applying that view of the world to entrepreneurship? I think that is actually, that has helped me a lot in running a business. I mean, I think a lot of successful founders say this a lot of times, but we don't internalize it because we glorify success so much, but we don't recognize, you know, people do, there's all these books that you would read about Bill Gates did this and Jeff Bezos did this and Elon Musk did this. And you think these are the right things to be successful. These are the traits of successful people. But there's also a million people who have probably done those same things and haven't been successful. And a lot of people, like all the successful founders will say that we were in the right place at the right time. Luck played a huge part in it. And that's really just coming back to saying it's randomness. A lot of it is just randomness. You can do all the right things and things may still not work out for you because of circumstances completely out of your control. And you may make some mistakes along the way and things still work out for you because just a big paradigm shift happened in the market. For example, COVID, some people might have had extremely successful travel businesses. They executed perfectly right. They had the right team. They had the right business model, but they just could not foresee a pandemic happening. And then some people might have had not the best business model, might not be executing right, but maybe COVID created a lot of uh, remote working opportunities for them. It just ties back to that trading idea again, that there is information that you just don't have at the time and there are situations outside of your control. And it just it's good to be humble about it, recognize it. And if something good happens because of something that was outside of your control, recognizing that you were lucky, not getting overconfident. And same if things don't work out the way you expected them to because of situations not in your control. Also not beating yourself up about it and saying, I just there's just nothing I could do this time. That that I think that has just kept me sane over the last five years as I've been running a business. Sometimes seeing the nature of the water you're in can give you perspective and knowing you don't control the waves, but you're being moved around. That sort of mathematical training and that view of markets, how did you transition from that towards deciding that you wanted to be an entrepreneur, towards you know having an idea that was worth pursuing on your own? Like, What was that original seed and moment like? When we were working on improving our investment decision-making on my desk, we recognized that there were 
there were times you wouldn't have access to information. Not, nobody in the market had access to information. It was new information. You couldn't make decisions based off of that. There's no point worrying about that. But what we didn't want was to be in a situation where there was information that was available to the rest of the market and it was not available to us. That That's bad. So then we started figuring out how do we make sure that is we always has uh, we always have access to all of the information that could help us make better decisions. And the, the best way to do that was basically to subscribe to everything that we thought could help us make investment decisions. But what and we were big, big consumers of data on my team. And we subscribe to pretty much everything. We subscribe to all kinds of broker research, sell-side research. We were getting information from the companies that the companies were finding themselves, all kinds of alternative data sets. Used to get lots of different kinds of news, used to subscribe to lots of blogs. Like we did a lot of things to make sure we were never not aware if the rest of the market was aware. But we very quickly got into a situation where there was just way more data and information to look at than we had bandwidth in a day. So we sort of gotten ourselves into a different problem where, okay, now there's just too much information. And a lot of what I'm looking at just seems to be noise. And just a repeat of what I've already seen before, there's no net new in this information. So to be really efficient at this game, of making good investment decisions, what I need to make sure is I'm u- utilizing my time the most efficiently. The extra information that I'm reading, there is always additional net new. And that brought us to the problem of how do you optimize your information flow? And, you know, in a world of potentially unlimited data, and that was only going to keep going up, up, up. This was like 2014, 2015. And we, at the time, already recognized that it, the volume of information being generated was only going to keep increasing. How can we make sure that if you have unlimited data, but you have limited bandwidth, limited resources, you utilize that most efficiently, you end up spending your time on the information that is the most material to your use case, information that is unique, information that is credible. And how do you get to that information as quickly as possible? So that so we spent some time working on that problem on my desk. And then I moved with the company from Chicago to Amsterdam. We were aiming to do what I had done in Chicago, replicate that in Amsterdam. So that's really when I started thinking about, do I want to do something of my own? I could spend a few more years at this company and build out this new trading book, or I could just go and try and do something of my own. And I really have this problem that fascinates me, the problem of controlling information flow. I can foresee this being an issue, not just on my team or on my desk, but actually financial firms across would have it. At that time, I didn't understand how big the problem was, to be honest, and that outside of just investment decision-making also this would be a problem, but at least within the scope of investment decision-making, I could see how big this problem would be for other teams as well. So I think it was a combination of those two. If I am building something from scratch, so I want to try and do it for myself, and I see a problem that actually I think is a huge problem and needs a solution, and there isn't something good that exists on the market right now that that I decided to start. So what was the solution? How did you go about putting things together? Because there's, you know, there's quite a big difference between making an investment decision and allocating capital and building a software or a data business. So how did you first, you know, put it together? What did it look like? And what does it look like today? It looks very different from what it looked like at the start. I can tell you that. I mean, yes, you're right. It's a huge, huge uphill path from just having an idea to actually building it into a viable business. And I didn't recognize that at the time. I was a first-time founder. So it was more of like, okay, I've got this cool idea and I think I can write software well enough. So I'm going to code up a solution to this problem and then people will buy it, right? Simple, that's how it works. And then obviously that's not how it works. So the, the original idea was basically how can we help 
firms who have a lot of data. They have a lot of data, but they don't know how to get the most value out of the data. How can we help them get, get value out of the data? We had a form of solution that we thought would work. We built that solution, didn't do enough customer validation, went to the market with that solution, didn't really go to the market, say like beta launched that solution, got a few early adopters, became a part of the 2018 Techstars Accelerator program in London. The one thing that we knew was we needed to be in a city which had lots of financial market participants, lots of finance activity. So New York and London were really our only choice. And then when we got those couple of early adopters and started working with them, that's when I really understood the, the value of customer discovery. Like I learned so much in working with those people for the first year on how they would evaluate a solution, how procurement works in a, in a financial firm. It's not enough that the user likes the solution to the problem. There are so many other stakeholders that you have to go through. How do you make sure that your solution creates the least friction for your customer to get it adopted? How do you get budget for this problem? How do you convey to a, the budget holder who often will be different from the user that this solution is worthy of creating a budget? So I think finding a problem and building a solution is probably 30% of the job. The other 30% is communicating to your customers that who often might not even realize that a solution exists to a problem. So they're not thinking about that problem because they just don't, you know, it's it's like ChatGPT. I didn't know I needed something like ChatGPT until ChatGPT was around. So communicating to your customers that there is a problem that exists and a solution that can actually make their lives much better. And then the remaining like 30, 40% of it is actually moving through, especially if you're selling to financial organizations, moving through their uh, buying cycles and procurement cycles to actually become an approved vendor. Big difference between product development and going to the market. When you look at the solution today, like what does it do? How do you get all the underlying data feeds in? What's the value that it can offer and to whom as well? Yeah, so in terms of, so before I talk about what the solution looks like today, I think it might make sense for me to talk for like a couple of seconds about what is the final problem that we landed on after have doing all of these like years of customer discovery and working with customers, shaping the solution based off of that. And also we realize like what our approach to company building is. We're, we're very customer first as a company. We will build things if people want it, uh, not the other way around, build something and then try and see if someone wants it. Over time, we realized that this initial problem that we had started with of there is too much data and there is a problem of information overload and my team was spending so much time just finding value from that data is is a problem that doesn't exist just in investment decision making. It's a wherever there is a need for knowledge intensive work, wherever there is a need to look through lots of big data sets, lots of unstructured data to make a decision, that is it is still a problem today. And though it, it is Today being solved through some mix of base level automation and mostly people, a lot of firms will hire a lot of highly qualified and highly compensated people and they will look through, they will first just search the internet, search lots of different data sources to even find relevant data points. For example, if you're trying to, if you're in a, in a private equity firm and you've got a deal at the top of the funnel, it's a private company, you don't know much about it, there isn't much information available on the company because it's private, then a very highly compensated private equity analyst or associate will basically spend hours and hours and hours on Google and all other kinds of data sources that they can think of where information could exist, just trying to find anything on that company. And that that seems like a waste. Or if you, if you 
are a bank and a company has come to you asking for a hundred million loan, then somebody in your onboarding team first needs to make sure that you, you're actually even allowed to do business with this counterparty. And that means checking things like they're not on any sanction list anywhere. None of the ultimate beneficiaries are any politically exposed people. This company doesn't have any previous allegations of fraud or bribery or corruption or whatever local regulations might mandate who you can and cannot do business with. And again, this is done using people today. Lots of large banks will employ huge number of people who actually just go and search through data sets to find this information. And not only is that inefficient and time consuming and cumbersome, it's also just not fun. Like, I don't know anybody who growing up said, you know what I want to be? I want to be that person who validates if a bank should do business with a counterparty. So the, the whole process just is inefficient. And I think that is when I say I realized the value of customer discovery. Over the last three or four years, as we started working with our customers and you you solve a problem for somebody, they say, oh, actually, your solution might be applicable also to these people and these people. And we really started fanning out across the organization. Some of these larger financial organizations, we realized how big the scope of this finding, first finding relevant data, and then second, finding value from the data is. So that's basically what the solution is today. We connect to a lot of unstructured data. And we bring all of that data in-house and we run it through our NLP system and we run it through our uh, RAG AI system. And I can talk about RAG AI in a minute to understand the context of the information, understand the content of the information. What does this information actually talk about? Who are the people? Who are the businesses? Who are the products that are mentioned? But then also, what is the context of this information? Is this information, for example, talking about an anti-money laundering fine that a company might have? Is this information talking about a regulatory update in an industry. So all of that is done uh, in an automated manner with the intention that the end user is able to, without having to spend time searching for data, without having to spend time gathering data, cleaning data, processing data, is able to find that very specific information, very specific insight that solves their use case as efficiently as possible. I'm a private equity analyst. I have a deal top of funnel. What do I do now? Do I not go on Google? What do I get from you guys? Yeah, yeah. So if you if you have a deal top of the funnel, you are you have just uh, identified this opportunity. You've probably had one call with management, and you're trying to make a decision on is this even an opportunity we want to pursue further. So the things you want to check is what is this company's competitive strengths, what is this company's position in the market, how big is the market for the company, are there any red flags with the company that would, may make us not want to proceed? For example, are there any previous accusations of wrongdoing? For example, or does this company, for example, have any open lawsuits against it that might affect the valuation of the company? All of this you would otherwise go on Google. So all you need to do now on the platform is you go and you search for this company on the platform. You identify yourself as a private equity analyst. The system under the hood has connected to all of the open source data sets that are available to already bring all of that information in, understand of all of the information that the system has brought in. So on any given day, we look at close to 6 million data points. Of those 6 million data points, in which data points is this company that you're looking for mentioned? And what the data points where this company is mentioned, what do those data points talk about? This data point is talking about a lawsuit against the company. This data point talks about the customer reviews that the company's product has in the market. This data point actually doesn't talk about the company, but is quite similar to the company. So it's probably talking about the competitor of a company. This data point also doesn't talk about the company, but is is quite similar to the company and is talking about a regulatory change. So it's probably something that is coming up in a company's in the company's broader industry. And the system has done all of that under the hood for you. 
So, and that's just one part of it. The other part that is built into the system is also an understanding of what is relevant for you as a user. The example that I like to give is if you go and search in Google for Nokia, for example, you will see everything from Nokia. Here is the review of my new Nokia phone to the new Black Friday deals on Nokia to Nokia lays off 2000 staff. If you're in the financial space, the only information that is relevant for you is Nokia lays off 2000 staff. The other two are irrelevant. So the system has that understanding to say what it not just that all of these data points talk about Nokia, but also what information is actually financially relevant. And then it ha- it can go a step further to also understand even within the finance domain, different users will have different requirements. So if you're searching for information on Microsoft, for example, you could have different financially, different relevant information from Microsoft that goes from uh, here is the projection of the growth in Microsoft's uh, cloud computing revenues for the next year and how much market share is Amazon expected to steal from Microsoft in the next year to any allegations of workplace harassment or any toxicity in culture at Microsoft. Not that I'm trying to say Microsoft has a toxic culture, just giving you an example. The first one is very relevant to an equity research analyst. The second one is probably more relevant to somebody in the sustainability or a DEI and social analyst. So the system also has that recognition. So now coming back to the original problem that we were talking about, as a private equity analyst, you just log on to the system. You've already configured yourself to say you're a private equity analyst. You search for a company. The system under the hood, through all of its data points, has already identified where the company is mentioned or the company is not mentioned, but the data point is indirectly connected to the company because a subsidiary is mentioned, the industry is mentioned, a supplier is mentioned, a raw material is mentioned. It has also then done the processing to understand the the context of each data point, and then it has identified the financial materiality of each data point. And then it has also assessed if this data point is relevant for you as a user. So top-end private equity analyst searches for the company and instantly sees all of the information about the company's product, the company's market, the company's competitors, any red flags against the company, any risk related to the company. All they've had to do is search on the top. The easiest parallel that I can draw is imagine if you could spin up a personal version of Google. If Google understood exactly who you are as a user and what results are the most relevant for you, and it was also it, and it was professional. It, it searched in professionally relevant data sets. That sounds like magic, so let's dispel the spell a little bit. I think to even answer the question of like, well, how does that work? How did you tune the model? What is the model? What And so on. Maybe it would be helpful if you could step back and talk about the main trends in artificial intelligence and machine learning, kind of what are the core approaches that companies building in the space are using, you know, whether it's deep learning or generative AI or the approach that you use. And maybe if we lay down that groundwork, we can pause, understand it, and then double click on on how yours are built. We obviously have to mention generative AI, right? Because that's the flavor of the season. But if we, yeah, if we, if we step back and just talk about the reason all of this is even possible is because we now, in the last four or five years, have really had the capability to understand text commercially and make it, and have that technology be commercially viable. So to, to understand text at scale and do it in a manner that is not where the economies just work. Five years back, six years back, companies building this space would be using, or even like uh, I'd say 10 years back, companies building this space would be using very primitive string matching techniques. So you want to find information on Apple, you take a document and you just replicate the work of an analyst where an analyst would control F and say, Apple, 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 is Apple mentioned on a document? Instead, you replicate that programmatically through code. You take all the words that are mentioned and then you say, is, is, are any of these words uh, sim- 
Apple. And then we evolved a bit to do like a bit of fuzzy matching. So even if it said like uh, Apple Inc., you would be able to identify that that's actually talking about Apple. Apple, And then we evolved a bit further to start understanding a bit more of the intent of the word. So, you know, the classic example of it's not Apple the fruit, it's Apple the company. So you'd be able to take a piece of text and identify the named entities that were mentioned and the topics that were mentioned. And you'd be able to disambiguate and say, these are common nouns, these are proper nouns, this proper noun based on the intent sounds mostly like a company. Quite Most of those systems are quite noisy, but they worked. This is really what we had five years back. And they worked well enough to maybe eliminate half of the noise in a system and then the the other half of the coming tying back all of all of this tying back to the problem of information flow and how do you make sure you're not looking at noise and you're looking at relevant information so they'd probably be able to get rid of like 50% of the noise and then you'd still need people to to validate the remaining data there's a, there's a really great post that I read recently that came out of Andreessen Horowitz and they were talking about the economies of scale and AI and it, it, they basically just described this that up until very recently, the reason AI businesses didn't take off as people would have expected them to is because we still had a very high false positive rate. We had all of these basic technologies that would allow you to clean out some of the noise, but then in enterprise, adopting AI would mean you need actually a very high accuracy, a very low error rate. And AI wasn't able to deal with some of these edge cases. So then you'd end up having a human in the loop system where you'd have you'd be using things like entity recognition and entity resolution, and you'd be using maybe some sort of uh, topic extraction to understand a little bit about what are the companies mentioned, what are the topics mentioned in a piece of information, and then you'd send it to a human to verify it. And then the hope would be that you've done it enough. Once you have people check enough data, you've started to collect more and more information on the edge cases, and then you can train your model and make them perform even better on edge cases. And maybe AI catches 80% of it, humans catch 20%, and over time, you can reduce that human verifying 20% of the information down to like 10% and then 5%. But at the top, you would really need a good mix of, you would need a good mix of machine plus humans. What ended ended up happening of companies that built in that time were by the time your the accuracy of your model started improving, you already had a whole org set up of people. And then it's hard to let go of that organ. You've already built a process and that process works. So you just continue to work like that. And if you see any of the data extraction, data processing companies that have been around for 10 years, eight years, they will all talk about a human in the loop process and they've just continued to do that. The problem is that that doesn't scale. There's only so much. We're trying to solve the problem of controlling information flow for, for people. And all you've done is you've moved the, the cost of that work from like some set of people to a different set of people who may be compensated differently. So that's why the solution is cheaper, but it still doesn't scale. Then we had BERT and the other variants of BERT about in 2018, I think, 2017 or 2018. And I think that was one transformational moment in how language was, natural language was understood, how written text was understood by machines. BERT gave you the ability to do, to work in the semantic space, or it was one of the first language models that gave you the, the ability, like we did have language models earlier, like word to work and so on, but it was one, like work in the semantic space and actually achieve good accuracy. So then you'd see the companies that are in the last, that came out in the last three or four years, we're talking pre-GPT days still, pretty much all of them were using some variation of BERT. And I think there's been enough talk around this. It didn't make sense to train your own language model from scratch. So almost everybody would take BERT, freeze the last two layers and fine tune it to your purpose. And that worked well for most use cases. But what that meant then was that that 
error rate, which was now maybe, which was originally 20%, now went down to 5% because you, you were able to take very specific use cases, very specific data sets. For example, we were able to take BERT and say, we're actually only going to work in the financial domain. So what we need is this language model to understand the financial context. It, we needed to understand financial language. We needed to understand things like when something says markets nosedived, that is actually very negative sentiment, which might, might not be very negative in standard language, but in financial language, that means very negative. And then you had people doing medical BERT and legal BERT and so on. And that was the era of language models. What you were able to do then is take text, run it through a language model, convert it into a vector. And then once you had this mathematical representation of text, then you, you could start analyzing text in the realm of mathematics. Like I established at the start, right? I, anything that where you can solve a problem with math is fascinating to me. So you could you could do things like understanding two companies are similar, but do it in the mathematical space. So you're not trying to say Apple and Google are similar because they have the same characters, but you're trying to say Apple and Google are similar because in the mathematical space, they actually have the same semantic context. And that was a huge, huge improvement in the accuracy of how language, how written text was understood and started making some of the things like a lot of uh, semantic search companies came around in that time. And that's really when we started as well. In our system, if you searched for a company, we were able to first find other information on that company. Based on the other information on that company, then we were able to extract what other companies are mentioned, what products are mentioned. Then we were able to train models to identify. With Apple, Foxconn seems to be mentioned quite frequently. With Apple, Google seems to be mentioned quite frequently. But based on the sentences that... Apple and Foxconn are mentioned in, we can build a model that predicts Foxconn is a supplier to Apple. And based on these sentences, when Google and Apple are mentioned, we can predict that Google is a competitor to Apple. And we can do that in an automated manner. So we're able to now build these knowledge graphs about a company and its broader ecosystem. There are just a couple of things I kind of want to anchor, right? One of which is like this semantic space of words and being represented mathematically, kind of without getting too formal, because I'm not technical enough, but the way I think about it is like there's the cosmos of space and in, in space there's lots of stars. And let's say the, these stars are a three-dimensional representation of some particular word ranked to like other particular words. So like all information is like in this magical space. And then when you said having a vector that moves through that, you know, some particular point of information is like a spaceship moving in this cosmos. And depending on its path from start to finish, or depending on its, you know, the places where it stops, it has a particular shape and that has a particular meaning. So you have this abstract representation of what is very qualitative human language, but in fact can be can be mapped and and then navigated by algorithms. What's interesting to me is kind of the second thing you're talking about, which is that the sort of like word cloudy idea of, you know, if Foxconn is is mentioned along with Apple, we're deducing that Foxconn's a supplier. And I guess that depends on the context of the other information in which these two things are are being described. And so it's not that, you know, the math has some profound knowledge of the meaning of things, but rather that based on how far away or how close each of these concepts are in this cosmos, you can, with some probability, predict that they're going to be associated in the future. Is that a fair way to kind of simplify it? That is, yeah, yeah. You simplified it like much better. I was probably going too deep into math, but that's that's basically it. If you if you think about that, 
that space of like stars and cosmos, you've got, if Apple is a star and Foxconn is a star, then the other stars around Apple and Foxconn probably talk about concepts like supply chain and procurement. And if you think about Google as a star, then the space, the other stars between Google and Apple talk about things like competitive positioning. And from that, you're able to identify one is a competitor and the other is a supplier. You can start extracting knowledge and creating interfaces to visualize that knowledge and so on. But this is still kind of pre where we are in terms of AI technology. What happened next? What have the breakthroughs been and what are they fit for purpose? And and how has your system evolved as well? It's amazing, right? That everything that we talked about so far is still like pre where we are next. So there was so much, just even that to us was so amazing. The fact that you could just like take a text extract two companies and run it through a model and the model would output and say, yep, these two companies are suppliers. Like, it's amazing. How, how do the machine learn to understand that? And that is pretty where we are now. So what's happening now is just incredible, incredible in terms of the possibilities of what, what can be done. So yeah, so we were talking about language models. Essentially, what a language model is, is just a store of information. It's just a massive, massive, massive store of information. BERT had, I will have to, like, don't fact check me on this, but whatever number of parameters that BERT was trained on, you can just think of BERT was trained to store certain amounts of information based on the the knowledge corpus that it was trained on. And training a model requires a lot of compute and requires time. And uh, so that is why originally we were training smaller models and then we started training slightly larger models, which had a larger number of dimensions. The more dimensions the model has, the more information it can store. And BERT at the time was like revolutionary because one of the lar- at that time, one of the largest models that was trained. And I think what we recognized was that the, the larger and the larger the models can get, the more and more information they can store. And based off of that, they can make more and more inferences, make more and more semantic connections. And from that, we then got into the era of large language models, which is where things like Llama and GPT and Claude and Coherent Anthropic, those companies fit in. What they essentially are is just a very, very large language model. So you've taken BERT, and but you now you now have a lot more parameters in the model and you've used a lot more compute to train that model and you've just trained it on a much, much, much larger training data set. Like imagine if you would have a person that just read all of the internet and they just know it and they just remember it. That's basically what a large language model is. And you've built capabilities into the system. The way you've trained that model, you've built capabilities into the system that it has inference powers. It's actually quite simplistic because what you're really doing is training the model to say what word will come next. You give it a you, you give it a piece of text and you say, can you predict what word will come next? And can you make this prediction based on this massive giant memory that you have of all of the internet and all of the books that are ever written and all everything that's on Wikipedia, everything. But just training a model to do that, what word will come next? It ends up learning so many patterns that then you can start doing things like talking to that model and being amazed at the fact that, oh, I asked a bot, a question and gave me such a coherent answer, a linguistically correct answer that makes sense. But that's really where we are now. Now to your point of, is this enough? It's not, actually. There was, uh, there's, uh, I'll, I'll send you links to these if you're interested, but there's something that I was listening to yesterday with the founder of Databricks and they were talking about why is it that any startup that they look at in the space of AI and generative AI at the moment, they have traction with consumers and they have traction with creators, but they have very little traction with enterprise. And that's really, I think, the last final problem that we need to solve with these with the language models. Come If we just talk about the entire evolution that we talked about, the, lang- the large language models today and the language models in the past, they've been trained to produce linguistically coherent 
they're trained to produce sentences that make sense, but they're not trained for factual accuracy. So for example, if we come back to the example of a private equity analyst, and if you ask a, language, a large language model the question, who are the private equity investors in this company? It will give you an answer. It will give you an answer that sounds correct because it is trained to say the answer should be something like the investors are and whatever comes after should be name of private equity firms. But it could give you the name of any random private equity firms, especially if that company is not in. If, if that company is in its training database on the in on everything that it has learned and stored in its memory, then it might give you the correct answer. But if that company is not in everything that it has stored in its memory, it will still give you an answer because it knows the answer linguistically should sound something like the investors are private equity one, private equity two, private equity three, but it could just put any name of private equity companies in there. Right. So going back to kind of our description of the Bayesian world, when you're making trades, you know, in some sense within this model is a mathematical version of you trying to guess at the probability of whether the thing you say to the user will sound sufficiently true to the user or not. You know, so all of it is like this giant probability field. And for most people, they're like, that sounds right. And most of the time, the stuff that sounds right will probably be right. But occasionally, the stuff that sounds right will be totally wrong and a hallucination. You know, so you're like, hey, can you give me some names of authors that wrote this article? And you might get some names of authors and they might have some written some articles, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they wrote that particular article or that they're even, even real people. So in the case of finance and money and places where you have to make very hard decisions, you can't have these kind of hallucinatory error rates, that might not work, which I think takes us as a final question to you know the type of approach that you're taking and how you think about AI is applied to financial services. Yeah, so you hit the nail on the head where you're saying it's basically the model at the end is a probabilistic model and it's trying to find what is the answer that makes the most sense. It's not nefarious in the sense it's trying to think, oh, what will sound correct to the user? But basically that's the idea that it, it, does this language make sense? Is this, the, is this the right language to be an answer to the question? But that's all it's doing. It's not saying, is this also the right answer to the question, right? And that's what we need to fix to make generative AI or language processing in general viable for enterprise, not just financial services, but for enterprise. Because for enterprise use cases, for professional use cases, accuracy is very important. In financial services, if you're if you're a private equity analyst analyzing a company and the system throws out risks for the company, one of two things can happen, right? Either you just trust the system as is, but those risks are incorrect, and then you've probably lost your job. Or you recognize that the system might throw risks that are inaccurate and then you end up you go and verify each of them and then you've given back all the efficiency gains that you had from using a system like this in the first place coming back to the point of we want to control our information flow and we don't want to have to spend time sifting through noisy information but you'll have to do that anyways to verify what this is model saying is this even correct so that's really what we were thinking about at Ocon is how do we make this there is obviously huge value in being able to use a large language model Right. Like, for example, coming back to the Google thing, if you search for something, Google tells you where the answer is. It gives you a list of links and then says, OK, here's where the answer probably is to your question. Go read the link, find the answer. Versus the ability that you have with generative AI, it just gives you the answer. It gives you those contextual insights that are the answer to your question. That is a huge time saver. But you need to make sure that those answers are rooted in fact. They're coming from credible sources and they have the latest updates, very important in finance. If your large language model has a cutoff date of September 2021, for example, like GPD does, that doesn't mean 
you don't want to know what happened with the company in 2022 and 2023. It's important for your job to know that. So how do we bring those three elements to generative AI, but keep the fact that it actually gives you the insights instead of giving you links where insights would exist? And that's really where RAG AI or retrieval augmented generation comes in. What you're essentially doing is you recognize that a retrieval system like Google works really well in pointing you to where information exists. And then it's on you, the user, to verify that the information is correct and accurate and all that. And a generative system is very good in giving you the answer. Can you combine the two? So you have a retrieval system where the user, first, when it first asks a query, you run through the retrieval system to identify relevant data points where information could exist. You take all of those relevant data points and you pass it as context to the LLM. So now you're not asking the LLM to rely on its memory to give you the answer. You're telling it, give me an answer to this question, but only use this information that I have provided you to give me the answer. And if you cannot give an answer, don't answer. But if you do answer, make sure you also source exactly of these data points that I provided you, which one did you use to provide the answer? So what you then get is you know that the information is credible because you control the knowledge base from where those data points have been derived and you've made sure that that knowledge base is credible. You know the information has access to the latest information because you have provided the latest information. And you can build trust in the system because the system gives you the option of fact-checking the information. It's giving you the source of the information. You, if you don't trust, if you say, oh, that risk doesn't sound right, actually, you can just go click on the source and verify it. Amazing stuff. Really fascinating topic. We can absolutely go deeper into this. And I'd love to at some point in the future too. But I think for today, I would love to just ask you to share where our audience can learn more about you and about your company, social media, websites, things like that. First of all, I mean, this is such a fascinating subject. We can go and talk. You could do like a five-hour podcast and I could still keep talking because I, I genuinely just find what's happening right now in the space of AI just incredible. We're innovating at such a rapid pace. And I think everybody already recognizing that in two or three years, the world is going to look so different in how we do these things, how we do knowledge-intensive work. It's, it's, it's just, it's incredible. We just published a white paper on drag. It's available on our blog. Our blog is insights.ocon.com slash blog. It, it's open for anybody to access. And we go a lot more into detail about the problems of generative AI for enterprise and how RAG AI solves those problems and how you, some of the use cases within financial services. And we'll, put, we'll publish some more and some snippets of how people can implement it as well. If you want to find more about the company, the website is aquan.com. That's A-U-Q-U-A-N.com. And we also have a LinkedIn newsletter that we publish daily, which identifies three interesting data points that our system has surfaced across all of the data points that we have for any company. Some of those are just like things hidden below the surface that you wouldn't know. Sometimes there's non-obvious connections that you wouldn't make within a company and another company or a company in a trend. So it's, it's just a good read. Amazing. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Lex. Hi, everyone. That's it for this week's episode of the FinTech Blueprint. For more technical deep dives into all things fintech and decentralized finance, check out fintechblueprint.com and grab a free subscription to the newsletter. This is Lex, and I'll see you next time.